You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like sort of understated or what this is a land that prays for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r 102.7 fm Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of Triple R's Greening the Apocalypse, your weekly dive into all the futury things and things we can do to make them less futury. Well, less horrible and nicer. That's not a very good tagline. I am Adam Grubb, just myself and Kent Goldworthy. How are you? Good evening, Adam. Good to be with you. Sweet. Yeah, well, the reason why we're here on our own is because I did a little pre-record on... Sunday night, and that was with an interesting character. So one of the things that, I don't know, I, I, I find this like kind of a, almost a psychological burden living in the model world, modern world is when I pick up a package from a supermarket and it's all shiny and pretty and it probably even has some like environmental sounding copy written on the package. But I know, I know that that thing is doing damage in all sorts of different ways Mm. because unless it's like, you know, anything that's travelled anywhere, it's travelled with fossil fuels. Anything that's packaged, even things that are in recycled or recyclable packaging, that takes energy to process and most of it, as we know, ends up like Mm. catching on fire and I don't know, a a lot of that is... Just, like, there to make you feel better rather than do anything good. Well, there's a guy that studies the... We've sort of talked about the idea of embodied energy on this show. How much energy does it take to make something? Uh, But you can apply that kind of thinking to embodied carbon as well. How much environmental or how how much climate change emissions does does it affect, you know, upstream? And you can apply it to all sorts of other things, including biodiversity loss, embodied in the products, in, and also how much labour does it take to make it? And the process to do that is something called footprint analysis or consumption-based accounting. And at the School of Physics at the University of Sydney, there is a group called ISA, Integrated Sustainability Analysis, and one of the professors involved in that is a fellow named Manfred Lenzen, and I had a chat with him on Sunday night. Let's throw to it. Welcome to Greening the Apocalypse, Professor Manfred Lenzen. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show, Adam. Really great to have you here. I first came across your work in 2007 with the Australian Conservation Foundation's Consumption Atlas and the associated report you did with that, the Consuming Australia Report, and that contained a pretty startling sentence. It said, if every Australian household switched entirely to renewable energy and stopped driving their cars tomorrow, total household emissions would decline by only about 18%. What 
what's going on there? Because when we think about doing something to lower our emissions, we think about changing the light bulbs. We definitely don't think about, you know, completely stopping driving or going so far as to stop using electricity altogether. But you're saying even if we did stop using electricity altogether or switch entirely to renewables, it wouldn't make a huge dent. Where, where is the carbon coming from? Uh, this um, this uh, work with the ACF was indeed quite interesting. And um, we, the ACF told us that the Atlas was actually quite popular. It was one of the most successful campaigns. Maybe part of that is what you just mentioned, that what we see every day and what um, we know creates carbon emissions, like driving uh, our vehicles and um, using electricity, that is only around uh, 20%. So I guess people were interested in finding out exactly what you just asked. And the short answer to this is basically stuff we buy. Yeah. When you buy an item of clothing or a mobile phone or anything, um, then this item has to be produced somewhere. It has to be uh, transported to the shop and before that assembled and um, then the uh, parts for that have to be shipped from somewhere else and then these parts have to be manufactured out of raw materials. The raw materials have to be extracted somewhere. All this adds up, and that's what we call the carbon footprint. The carbon footprint is different to just emissions that we cause directly through our actions, let's say driving a car. We talk about the carbon footprint adding up all those little bits of emissions that are embodied in the goods and services that we purchase. And... I, I can almost picture this graph inside the report, but I'm going to pull it up to look at it. But I've looked at it many times since, and it shows the breakdown of where the embodied carbon emissions are. And as you say, goods and services is, well, back then it was, you, you figured it out to be around 30%. Food, another 30%. And then surprisingly too to me that construction and renovations account for about 12% of the Australian average households greenhouse gas pollution so i guess some people that are building they're going to that's going to be massive amount of their annual greenhouse gas emissions but spread across the whole economy the average household it's like still a huge chunk you're absolutely right some people in that week when they were surveyed they bought a car or built a house or some fairly substantial house renovations and so this, this 12%, you know, or whatever you see in this breakdown is an average. So yeah. any particular household could, of course, deviate from this. You have since been working on not just looking at embodied carbon emissions and embodied energy, but as part of your work at Integrated Sustainability Analysis. Is that right? You, yeah, ISA. Yeah, ISA. You're also more recently looking into... A similar kind of thing, like how much uh, embodied water goes into, I think that was also in the Consumption Atlas, but you're progressing those studies into all the things that we make, buy, consume, and how much biodiversity loss goes into it. And this is the one that's really interesting to me out of all of them is how much embodied labor goes into making our stuff. So I'd love to talk about that at some point tonight. But you've been recently published in the journal Nature with the co-authored study called environmental and social footprints of international trade and you're looking at this it's the same idea 
but how much of the embodied carbon that we consume is coming in over our borders embodied in the goods and services that we consume what did you what were your main findings in in that paper no no that um, what we found was basically that for the whole globe um, about 30 percent of the carbon that is contained in anyone's carbon footprint that's also for the average australian's carbon footprint is internationally traded Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's uh, that shows you um, how globalization is now driving um, e- carbon emissions worldwide. Yeah. Um, you know, take um, for example, uh, motor vehicles that are imported into into Australia. Let's just say this 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 one commodity. Let's say they're assembled in Japan. Then the emissions uh, from electricity used. Uh, during the assembly are basically emissions from the Japanese territory. But then you might get, um, you know, steel uh, imported from China into Japan for this vehicle. Mm -hmm. So the steel-making emissions come from China. And then maybe iron ore from Brazil uh, from that. And then emissions uh, from the Brazilian territory. So this um, supply chain network that underlies any commodity that we buy is generally global. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, um, not only then do you have the effect that we actually don't see the emissions uh, embodied in our car or associated with the production of our car. We only see what comes out of the exhaust. Uh, not only that, but these emissions are also not occurring in Australia. And so they are actually not counted towards um, uh, Australia's emissions responsibility. And this is a story that we we found remarkable because it because it has enabled um, some nations uh, to outsource uh, their their uh, emissions. Basically, let's say Switzerland um, you know, or the UK, they find their their emissions from the territory as it is counted by the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. They find their emissions decreasing, but that's their territorial emissions. If you look at their carbon footprint, means uh, it means that you count everything that they import, then their emissions are actually increasing. You know, so because of of, of these distortions, it's uh, we we find that it is very important to account in a footprint sense. That mm. means you know you should add up all the emissions that ultimately are needed to satisfy someone's oral population's consumption, no matter where they occur. Mm. So I guess just thinking of the case of Australia, we're one of the most affluent places in the world. I mean, we're already considered very high climate change causes, like carbon emitters, but that's mostly just looking at the amount of coal that we burn internally and these kind of things. If you start, if you add on the upstream carbon, how do we look? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting uh, question, uh, Adam. Uh, Australia is an interesting case because uh, yes, we are an affluent society, and um, but interestingly, Australia's economy is very different from your typical European economy. Even though we share the same uh, living standards, Australia is actually a net exporter mm-hmm. of emissions. That means emissions embodied in the goods and services that we that we import are, um, are less than the Australian emissions embodied in the exports. Yeah? And that has to do with uh, the fact that Australia exports 
primary commodities like metals and minerals, uh, beef, meat, uh, wool, and so on. And typically, these primary commodities are more emissions intensive than manufactured commodities that we that we import. Uh, but the difference is not so large. We still remain one of the highest emitters in per capita terms. Yeah. For a country like China, China is sort of the manufacturing factory of, of the world. So a lot of embodied emissions in imports to many countries are actually Chinese emissions. Uh, if you look at, like for example, we did a study for the UK and a substantial part of their imports had actually Chinese emissions embodied in them. So for the two, your typical European country, the balance is the reverse than what it is for Australia. They um, emissions embodied in imports are larger than their emissions embodied in exports. You know, Australia mm-hmm. is, is an odd example in, in sort of OECD terms. So, okay, I was hoping for some good news there, but it's, it, it doesn't change things too much. We no, <laughs> no. What? Actually, you I... know, Australia could actually, in international negotiations, take the point of view that we should um, uh, engage in consumption-based accounting because it would it would go in favor of Australia, but um, that mm. hasn't happened. I think it's, you know, it wouldn't change uh, things drastically, but for uh, countries in like uh, the UK, uh, it would actually make their emissions uh, responsibility higher. Mm. Can I read you something from, <clears throat> it's a slightly, it's a fairly related topic. There's a Wikipedia page on energy return on energy invested, which is a similar th- it's a specific problem that is kind of a subset of what you do. And there's a, there's a critiques of section on the Wikipedia page. And part of it says, how deep should the probing in the supply chain of the tools being used to generate energy go? For example, if steel is being used to drill for oil or construct a nuclear power plant, should the energy input of the steel be taken to account? Should the energy input into building the factory being used to construct the steel be taken into account? Should the energy input of the roads which are used to ferry the goods to be taken into account? What about the energy used to cook the steel workers' breakfasts? These are complex questions evading simple answers. And what they're talking about there is where do you put the boundaries on anything that you're studying? So you're looking into embodied energy, embodied carbon, biodiversity loss. The, the issue is the same no matter what it is. If you don't consider those things, like the energy used to cook the steel workers' breakfasts, it's going to be incomplete. Like you, you're really not doing a full analysis of the amount of energy going into whatever it is you're questioning. So, how do you deal with these issues? Mm, that's a that's a good question, and uh, it's it's also a very relevant question because uh, companies ask themselves exactly uh, the same because. Um, in, in the corporate world, this is this consumption-based accounting is called uh, scope three. You know, scope one is direct emissions by a company. Scope two is emissions from electricity, and scope three is the rest, basically from the purchase of all the inputs that go into production and this embodied carbon. Uh, and um, the question here is, well, how far should we search up our supply chain tree? Um, when can we reasonably say that we captured most of our footprint? because uh, such an undertaking is labor-intensive, time-intensive, and uh, therefore it, it, it costs money to pay, pay a person to look, look up all these supply chains. But um, the times have changed uh, drastically over the last uh, decade or so. 
And it's uh, thanks to a, an economic technique that's called input-output analysis. And that is a technique that uh, a Russian emigre to the United States, his name is uh, Vasily Leontiev. He came up with this and he received a Nobel Prize for it. And it's basically a mathematic technique. It's based on a, on a matrix inversion and, a, and an infinite uh, series. And uh, what it enables... Well, you lost to, me there. Um, yeah, yeah, it's true. But I'm going to let it pass. <laughs> yeah, please let it pass because otherwise we'll, we'll, we'll be sitting here an hour still. But um, what it enables you to do is it enables you to do a boundary-free, completely um, a holistic assessment. In, and uh, using input-output techniques, you do not have to set a boundary. Uh, in other words, it means that you can track and trace the supply chain tree uh, up to an infinite number of supply chain nodes. So all these examples that you mentioned, they would all be included and examples even further than that. So people have asked me, well, how can you go up to infinity? That's just impossible because you do not have an infinite amount of time. And this is where mathematics come in. I mean, I can say again, this is because um, of uh, an infinite uh, series has a, has a often, and in this case, uh, a simple matrix uh, inverse r representation, uh, which you mm -hmm. can work out with large computers. And um, then you can actually quantify uh, complete uh, carbon footprints. So, uh, done any inverse matrix inversions <laughs> lately, Kent? Not that I'm aware of. Would I? <laughs> would I know if yeah, I you had? Might, might not have noticed. <laughs> um, we've been. You're on Green. The Apocalypse on Three Triple R, and we are in the midst of an interview with Professor Manfred Lenzen, who is talking about the fascinating topics of where, if you ultimately consider um, the impacts of our decisions, either at the individual or the national level, where does the where do you place the blame for the for the carbon or the embodied energy or the biodiversity loss? You are listening to a Triple R podcast. Podcast, etc. <laughs> We're going to go back to our interview with Professor Man Manfred Lenzen from the University of Sydney talking about all things embodied in our lifestyle. What a, where, where does the blame lie? Well... One interesting thing is that you can apply these methods to things other than water, other than carbon, and one of the things you do is apply it to labour, human labour. Mm. We've talked about on this show before the idea of energy slaves. Are you, f are you familiar with that terminology? Yep. yep. Yeah, and the idea there that if you were to power the average Australian's lifestyle instead of using fossil fuels and the other energy resources that we have with humans on treadley bikes or something that were generating that electricity or literally pushing your car, then how many humans would you need to power your lifestyle? And from memory, the figures that I came up with looking at this very crudely was in the realms of 300 and something. Does that sound about on, right? On the energy question, I'm actually not up to speed with, with the numbers, but, but what we've done is the, uh, the actual uh, labor that you need to, to, to satisfy uh, the consumption of, of uh, the average Australian or the average person in the developed world. And that was, that was also, there were some startling discoveries. Yeah, so rather than these imaginary human beings, which are 
powering our lifestyle. There are mm. actual human beings powering yeah. our lifestyle. Yeah. What's yeah. the what's the average Australian like? How many how many people are working for us? Well, on it, average, it, it, it depends, of course, you know, on your on on your lifestyle and how much you uh, you uh, you consume. But let's say um, for for the average person in the developed world, and that's the Australian or the German or the Japanese, there's anywhere between one and a half and five people working in addition to to yourself to satisfy your your lifestyle. So this this means that, of course, we we work to satisfy our lifestyles because simply the money that we earn is spent, you know? But in terms of actual working people, we ourselves are not enough. And we require people overseas to work and produce things that we consume over and above what we work ourselves. Now, the, the reason why the situation is different with labor and with income is because the uh, wages overseas are much lower than the wages in Australia. So because of this wage differential, we can actually afford, uh, through our purchases, to pay indirectly, of course, people, more, more people than, um, than ourselves to produce things that we consume just because their wages are lower. So, so let me just to visualize this. So I'm, I'm assuming if in the OECD countries we vary between about 1.5 and 5 mm. workers working for each individual, Australia is going to be towards the upper end of that. So let's say you're a middle-income Australian. You're going to, let's say you've got a little f- imaginary factory with four people working for you mm. day and night. Yeah. That's right. Or well, maybe not day and night, but they're full eight hours yeah. um, equivalent a day or whatever. Yeah, so that's right. it's actually obviously distributed. But um, if you think about it that way, it's it's genuinely horrifying. <laughs> well, the, the 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 way this works is, let's say you work, but part of the money that's that's uh, but part of your work doesn't go to your own consumption. Uh, but it goes towards consumption of somebody else, you know, because uh, yep. let's say if if you, if you work in a factory, then the goods that you produce they're bought by somebody else. You, know? you might buy uh, also from your own workplace, but that, that's that's an exception. Yeah, but then uh, we buy from workplaces where the wages are on average lower. So, you know, we can we can actually afford this this, this little factory that you just described and and get more people working for us more than we work for others. So on on the flip side, now put yourself into the shoes of somebody working for us. Now, when you look at their typical day, when you ask yourself, well, how many people are working for them? That's actually less than one. Well, how does that work? Um, By definition, yeah. Well, it has to be because there's a balance across the globe, right? It has to be less than one. So this means that they work, let's say they're a farmer, and so they they would work then 20% of the time to satisfy their own consumption, but then 80% of the time they work to provide goods that somebody else buys, just just Mm. to have enough income to get by. And that 20% that there is also... What then? They're also not covering their own needs, but those of their children out of that. Well, let's and say it, it's it's a, it's an average yeah. per capita. You know? If if they, in yeah. from that twenty percent, uh, you know, these, it's the average person, no matter whether it's a child or anything. But of course, it would hold for a family too. You know, for the twenty percent that the breadwinner of the family works goes towards themselves and the family. 
and the rest of the, at the time, what they produce uh, goes goes to somebody else. So that 20% is the flip side of the factor of five somewhere else, yeah? because you have five people yeah, who are only 20% yeah, uh, of the time for their own goods and, and, and they then work. The 80% of those five people goes to um, to somebody in, in an affluent country. So that's really what yeah. we found. It's a, it's a world of masters and slaves, you know, just like the energy slaves you described earlier on. That was Professor Manfred Lenzen from the University of Sydney. How uh, we've each of us in Australia got like four or five people working for us all the time to to enable our consumption in the developing world. Mm. And and I was comparing that to the concept of energy slaves, which we've discussed on the show before. Where if you add up the amount of energy that we use, you'd actually need about three hundred slaves <laughs> to to power our lifestyle. And he was saying, if you're in the developing world, because we're, use, because we're using four or five of people labour, that means there's, there's going to be less than one for everybody less. And it works out that if you're in the developing world, you might be, I think he said, 20% of the time you're mm-hmm. working for yourself. The other 80% of the time you're working for somebody else, effectively. Right. And that, us. Uh, but... So how do they even survive? Because that's not enough time. But the but they've also got energy slaves, just nowhere near as many as us. But you, so, but they've still got more than one imaginary person working for them in an energy sense. I guess that's how the whole thing works. Why they're not starving entirely, right? But still, the disparity is just like mind-boggling. Because like, that's twenty-five time five by five. You know, like just the amount of resources that we're using for our lifestyle is. Um, yeah, shocking. And that must be reflected in the nature of the things that those resources go to provide, the goods and services, etc. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of that, yeah, it's all in the things that we buy that's imported and, um, yeah. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 R. Welcome back to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R. We are continuing our conversation, which was pre-recorded from a phone call to Sydney, Professor Manfred Lindzen from the School of Physics at the University of Sydney. And we're about to bring up a topic we don't think we've ever tackled here on Triple R, but he's a nuclear physicist. We talked about the prospects for nuclear power. You've also written on nuclear energy and did a study as part of the governmental inquiry into nuclear energy 10 years ago under mm-hmm. Ziggy uh, Zwickowski. Your your specialty is nuclear physics, and this is one, or what you trained in, and this is one issue where I find it extremely difficult to get answers that don't feel incredibly biased, either on the one hand from engineer-oriented people who have a pretty deep faith in technology and take a lot of convincing about dangers of things because you know engineering problems can be overcome uh and and a bit of a gee whiz still sense of that nuclear is the future spirit and then on the other hand you've got anti-nuclear activists who can misrepresent facts and it just makes the whole thing this murky mess for me what did you f- find when you did that study? Well, the uh, the question that was posed in in this in this inquiry was uh, whether um, nuclear energy was a low carbon um, uh, power technology or not. Because at the time there were conflicting there were conflicting studies around where um, in, in one 
a study from the Netherlands said that um, the, um, uh, the nuclear nuclear plants were as emissions intensive as a, as a natural gas plant. Now, and, and it was our job to then look at the evidence, and we've also done some own analysis. So what we found is that nuclear energy, and that, that includes the entire fuel cycle, starting from the extraction of uranium mining uh, and fuel manufacturing, the operation of the power plant, the construction of the power plant, decommissioning of the power plant, rehabilitation of the mine, and the disposal Mm. of uh, yeah. of the nuclear waste. So all that counted. Uh, nuclear was still a low-carbon technology. The, basically, you, you can understand that in a way that you don't need a lot of fuel in terms of mass to to operate a nuclear power plant because the energy density in uranium is incredibly high. The evidence mm. uh, was overwhelming, uh, you have to say that. The, the embodied uh, emissions on a, in a kilowatt hour of nuclear power are, are comparable with, with those from from most renewables. Of course, there are a few qualifications here. So are you a nuclear advocate? Um, the embodied emissions in a kilowatt hour of nuclear electricity, they did, of course, they, they, did, they still depend on, on a number of factors and one is all grade. You know? uh, at the time of uh, the study, nations were still exploiting oil bodies with a reasonably high oil grade. So that means the concentration is reasonably high and you didn't have to go to the great length to extract uranium and to enrich it to, uh, to the necessary uh, concentrations. But as the oil grades uh, decline, of course, then um, the amount of uh, energy and therefore carbon you need to, to extract uranium and to enrich uh, uh, the, uh, the the fuel is is higher, so we need to say that if we uh, have to resort to low grade uh, ore bodies, the emissions they they could actually go up from what we estimated, you know, about uh, 20, 20 grams per kilowatt. They, they could go up to 100, 150 uh, grams per kilowatt hour, but they, they would still be lower than the ones from a from your from the average uh, gas plant, you know? and of course yeah. um, the the terms of the study were emissions, carbon emissions of a of a nuclear power plant. There is still, of course, the the issue of the radioactive waste that we we, we simply have no idea what would happen over those long, 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 extremely long half lives of uh, of those isotopes. Uh, where we think of um, uh, the, storing them. Uh, it's just, just not humanly possible to put any sort of reasonable estimate on, 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 on what could happen over those millions of years. Um, and that, of course, makes, makes the question the complex and also problematic. And interestingly, this question for me has to do with the question that you, Adam, asked right at the start, because we started talking about lifestyles. If you think about it, well, would it be good to recruit more nuclear power plants and so that we can actually just decommission more uh, more rapidly our fossil fueled plant assets? Well, the, the question there is how much electricity do we require in the future? And uh, is the whole world going to aspire to lifestyles that are currently uh, prevalent in, in Australia and the rest of the developed world? 
if the electricity demand and generally the energy demand is going to increase to an extent that it is challenging to supply all this with renewable energy, then of course the question becomes relevant. Well, is it better to recruit more nuclear power or shall we still then try to run the remainder that we cannot supply with renewable energy using gas and so on? And I think that's, yeah, that's, it's, it's a very complex question and I think a question that has to do with lifestyle. So, you know, of course, you know, we can for Australia, we can generate 100% of electricity using renewables, right? That's because we have a low population density. We have a large sunny continent and we have, we can actually interconnect uh, wind and solar generators over a large, large, large area. But the question is, can this be done um, practically and feasibly in, in Europe or in densely populated developing countries and I don't know and what you do if, for example, in those developing countries, people want to consume as much as we do per capita. Uh, imagine the electricity data they will need. Uh, and so the, the question of the, um, the fuel mix, nuclear or not, is intrinsically linked for me the question of what lifestyles do we want to uh, aspire to in the world? Mm. Do you think even in Australia, uh, now given that wind has a really good energy return on invested, solar is pretty good too, you know, really leaps and bounds have been made in terms of, of improving the technology and getting it installed in the last decade. And it's a really positive news story. But do you actually think that the Australian lifestyle, because what we're mostly looking at there is replacing electricity and with renewables, you know, comes baseload issues and those kind of things as well. Do you think we could actually transform all of Australia's economy? And I guess that means trans- making the those four workers in that imaginary factory, that their factory is also powered by renewables if we want to completely change over to renewables. Do you think it is possible to maintain our level of affluence? Well, um, see, at, at the moment, what, what, where renewables come in is uh, mainly producing electricity. Right? And there, there's no question that we, can, that we have the resources wind and solar and, and hydro and biofuel resources in Australia to provide a 100% uh, renewable electricity supply. There's, there's half a dozen studies on this that confirm this. Uh, but, of course, electricity is only one part of the story. You also need uh, liquid fuels, and there are some applications where you need high-temperature energy that is, for example, supplied by, by gas that's in for example, in metal, metal processing and smelting and all that, that is not done using electricity. And for that, you need some alternative for uh, solid and liquid fuels. And at the moment, um, the, the only sort of uh, uh, large-scale feasible uh, candidates that are around us are, are renewable are, are biofuels. Uh, and of course, there you run into problems uh, that biofuels compete with agriculture or and uh, with biodiversity objectives because they require uh, land. And so, again, it's not, it's not a simple question. And um, for the whole energy needs at the moment, uh, without compromising food supply and, um, and biodiversity objectives, I, I'm not sure that this is possible. Now, this is for Australia. I have read studies that, that say for the whole world at the moment, 
uh, at the levels of affluence that exist, the energy needs that cannot be met by electricity, so the remaining bits cannot be met uh, by biofuels alone, if we assume that the whole world is going to aspire to living standards like in Australia, because in countries that are densely populated and that are affluent, simply the land resources are not there to have those large-scale biofuel plantations um, supplying all the non-electricity energy needs. Um, now, of course, this story could change entirely if algal biofuels made some progress. But uh, as far as I understand, the, um, the rate of production for algal biofuels at the moment are too low to be, uh, to be uh, economical. Yeah, there's very few commercial, commercialised algal biofuel like, um, places in the world, as far as I'm aware. Mm-hmm. Some very serious challenges there um anyway which we could which we have talked about on the show before actually well just as a sign off manfred is given that you've looked at all this big picture stuff uh for where our impacts are where where the people are that like make our clothes and and our electronics and how many of them there are where the carbon emissions are just for an average australian it, it's pretty opaque. Like, where exactly are our impacts? We were saying earlier in the show, only you, you change everything to renewable electricity in your house and you stop driving your car, you've only dealt with 20% of your total emissions. Mm. What are the things that are the easiest for us to change which can have positive impacts or at least limit mm. our impacts? Yeah. I mean, um, there's actually, I believe, quite a few win-win situations. You know? I, I mean, I don't know. I, I I can't, of course, you know, speak speak for 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 other people here. But uh, I, I, my guess would be that if you look at all the things that you buy, and and then ask yourself, well, do I really need this? You know, then maybe you come up with a whole range of stuff that you think, or if, if I if I really t- took a hard look at it, uh, I, I could actually do without it. And maybe in some of those cases, your life would actually improve uh, because uh, let's say you would spend less time with stuff but you would spend more time just talking to people. So um, there could actually be a few win-win situations. There is this sort of general trend of of degrowth and downscaling where people say, look, just let's get away from this um, materially intensive uh, lifestyle and let's, instead of spending more money and and going through more stuff, let's spend more time just, just uh, contemplating, uh, you know, the be- the beauty of the world around us, and, and spending time with people. I think that's that's a pretty good idea. Wow, I should we should have interviewed you, Manfred, for a book that I helped author called "The Art of Frugal Hedonism." <laughs> you, you, you're sing, singing very much it. to the same tune. <laughs> Yeah, I'll send you a copy. Uh, okay, thank it you. Has no, been the art of frugal a, hedonism. Yeah, that's that's great. <laughs> and obviously, you know, personal changes are just one part of the picture, which includes lobbying and you know, we, every I, you know, our world has to change. I think if what you're saying is yeah. is true, uh, to create a fairer and one that doesn't just burn up uh, and become a hellscape. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> to put it bluntly. So uh, thank you so much for your time tonight and all the really interesting research that you do and with yourself and with your colleagues at the University of Sydney Integrated Sustainability Analysis. We'd love to have you back 
and talking about these issues as they develop and maybe dive into some of them even deeper. But thanks for coming on Green in the Apocalypse, Manfred Lenzen. Uh, thank you, Adam. Thanks for great talking to you. Bye-bye. You are on Green in the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R as we wrap up the wrap-up. Thank you, Kent Goldsworthy. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me along. We will see you in the future. I've been Adam Grubb. Until next week, have all the fun. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au. 